0: Hello, and welcome to Festival of the Mind. In early modern times, people sought answers to familiar scientific questions. What are the causes of events in the sky and on Earth? What is the universe made of? How does the human body work? Putting the science of Shakespeare's time into dialogue with modern priorities and concerns, Dr Tom Rutter and artist Gina Allen discuss their collaboration on this project.
1: Hello, Gina. Hello, Tom. So should we start by discussing how we met? Sure. So that was at an event called Ideas Bazaar at the University of Sheffield in autumn of last year, which brought together academics and creatives who are interested in working on Festival of the Mind project. So it was a kind of academic and creative speed dating, if you like. And I was looking for someone who might be in any way interested in collaborating with me um, and realizing my uh, research on Shakespeare and science. So I've been writing a book on that, which is about how the science of Shakespeare's time, which we'll call the early modern period, influences his work and how his work engages with the science of his time. So some of the key things I'm interested in are early modern people's understanding of the heavens, what's above us, you know, the stars and planets, uh, the weather, what the universe is made of, the body, and so on. And I wonder if you want to talk a bit about what made you think that I'd be a good person to work with?
0: Well, I'm an artist with an environmental science background, so I was at that event secretly hoping that I would find somebody who had some interesting work going on around similar things. So combining arts and and a science interest. I have some background in communicating in a visual way, issues that are not um, visible to the naked eye. Particularly air pollution has been an area of research and and work for me. So this this came as a, a very interesting project to me.
1: And I was really fascinated to hear that that was something that you'd been working on because some of the topics I'm interested in, like the atomist theory of matter, you know, the universe is made up of these tiny things that we can't see, really seem to chime with your earlier work on topics like particulate pollution, microplastics, and and, and so on. We came up with uh, a title, didn't we? Mirrors of the Invisible. And I guess that was reflecting on, if if you like, the thing thing we've been talking about, our shared interest in what you can't see and how you make that visible to, to a viewer. And I I think that was your idea, but I really wanted to run with it because, in fact, mirrors often figure in titles of early modern books um, uh, that are introducing scientific or other topics. So you've got things, but, you know, books called things like The Mirror of Health, The Optic Glass of Humours. It's this really recurrent and and popular trope. So um, I love that. Thinking about how we've worked over the last few months, I've been sharing bits of my research and my writing with you. And... Uh, sharing some early modern texts and sources for you to get uh, ideas and inspiration from. I've seen some early drafts and and sketches of your work, and we've discussed what might go into this. And I know, roughly speaking, what it's gonna look like. It's gonna be an artwork that is a painting consisting of three panels, each 120 by 150 centimeters. And each of those three panels is gonna deal with a different theme, namely the heavens, plague and disease, and atomism and microparticles, and they're gonna be joined together to form a single image. So although there are three parts, they're going to cohere into one whole. Well, I know roughly what's gonna be there, but it's a while since I've seen this work in progress. So I'm really excited to have the big reveal today.
0: Okay, I'm nervous now. Because the panels are so big, I can't obviously bring them with me. Um, so I brought an iPad um, with some photos of the work in progress, which I'm handing over to Tom oh, to flick wow. through.
1: Okay, so I'm just taking this in.
0: Okay, so the the word reflection really stood out for me when um, we were first talking about the project. And you'd sent um, lots of material for me to look through. And I was sifting through it, trying to find things that would work visually to form a coherent image. So that word reflection kept coming up. We were talking about how work from Shakespeare's time actually does reflect on our contemporary society. And I started thinking literally about mirrors and how that would work visually. And it's a device that's been used quite a lot over time in art, um, because you can do all sorts of things with a mirror. You can distort the reflection and, and do lots of different things with it. So it seemed to work quite well. I then started thinking about the context of the images and that actually this work often would have been Shown on a stage, it was it was yeah, it was a performance. I didn't really want to throw that out of the window and do something totally different, so I kept the idea of a stage and tried to integrate that with a mirror. And I actually, at that point, got a bit stuck because those two ideas weren't coming together naturally. So, in sort of desperation, I was flicking through um, websites trying to look for ideas of how to to bring these two together and. Went on the Royal Shakespeare Company website and actually saw a picture of their stage in Stratford with a, a mirror forming the backdrop. So I thought that that actually <laughs> works really nicely. And So that's the idea that I've borrowed. Together the three panels form a stage and the mirror is the, the backdrop of the stage if you like. And then we've introduced various characters onto each panel.
1: So in effect You've got a character drawn from Shakespeare and you've then got a mirror image of that character in a sort of modern setting or dress or context. Is that right?
0: Yeah, exactly so. So the actors, as it were, are characters from uh, Shakespearean plays and their reflection in the mirror are their, maybe not contemporary counterparts, but a contemporary character in a very similar pose, obviously because it's a reflection, but a different person behaving in a different way.
1: So perhaps we should talk our listeners through this image and what we can see from left to right. So in the panel on the left, um, we've got a, a human figure that's still, I think, a work in work in progress in front of this uh, mirror landscape with moon in the top left. And then above that, um, we've got some astronomical uh, images. So I can see the bear and I can see the, the dragon. Yeah.
0: yeah, so all different references from from the texts and the, the sources that you sent over to me.
1: And in this part of the image, we're interested, aren't we, uh, in the topic of astronomy and uh, and and the heavens and the weather. And I guess we spoke, didn't we, and, and you've read some of the, the materials I sent you about um, the changing understanding of the heavens in Shakespeare's time. So Shakespeare is alive during this period of great change uh, in understanding of the universe and the heavens, a period when these new ideas are coming into circulation. So a couple of decades before his birth, Copernicus's work proposing that rather than the earth being at the centre of the universe, um, it it rotates around the earth, is published. And towards the end of Shakespeare's life, Galileo is making his observations of the moon and the phases of Venus that are leading him to be able to prove that Copernicus's ideas aren't just a theory, they actually reflect what the universe is like. So there's been a certain amount of discussion over how much Shakespeare knew about these new ideas. But for example, one text that we know Shakespeare did read, Montaigne's uh, essays, uh, makes reference to Copernicus. I think it's pretty likely that Shakespeare is is aware of these notions. So we can perhaps see some of their influence in plays like uh, Hamlet which is a play that's very interested in the nature of the universe. But we focused in particular, didn't we, on on King Lear. This is a play that is obsessed in questions about the universe and how it works, if you like. Is this something that works naturally? Is it something that God intervenes in? It's set at a time when the universe has been behaving strangely. There've been eclipses of the sun and moon. And I think that's something that your your work's been reflecting, hasn't it, Gina? Mm. I think its most famous image, perhaps, is that of Lear on the heath in his madness, having been cast out by two of his daughters, and in a way calling for the world to end. So you'd think lots of uh, material there for an artist to work on. So how did this all find its way into into your work?
0: Yeah, I mean, Lear was tricky because when we started talking about him and how I would portray him, you know, I wanted to put a crown on, on him because I know he's a king but we talked about the fact that he probably wasn't wearing a crown at that stage in the play so I had to find ways of providing some visual clue an indicator of who this character is and eventually we we included the fool that would have been present on the, on the heath with Lear um, so the fool becomes a, a sort of visual clue to who King Lear is um, but rather than putting him as a, an additional character, uh, additional actor on the stage. I've brought him into the scenery. So if you think about a you go and see a play at a theatre, often there are scenery elements that are present on the stage when there's no actors involved. He's become part of that um, scenery for two reasons. It, because it, it kept the, the mirror and the reflection clearer for the, the main protagonists in the in the image, um, but also because I'd understood the fool, the role of the fool in Shakespearean dramas to provide a, a counterpoint as sort of um, against the, the vanities and the follies of, of the protagonist, somebody that the audience could identify with. So I've taken the idea of, of the fool as a sort of witness and made him part of the scenery so that he's present. Across the whole image, and not just specifically as a, a visual indicator of, of who Leah is in the image.
1: Fantastic, and I wonder if you could talk a bit more about how that idea of the mirror has worked through in your presentation of Lear, and how you've used that as a way of linking early modern and contemporary priorities and agendas.
0: Yeah, I mean King Lear, raging on the heath, is inviting. Um, I can't remember the phrase. I think it's sulphurous fires. Um,
1: Sulfurous and thought-executing fires, I think.
0: Yeah, which sound really nasty. So I'd taken that idea and thought about the, a contemporary context, and we were talking about weather and climate change. And I have a sister who lives in Australia, so wildfires were a, a sort of hot topic of conversation um, with her at the, when we were starting to talk about this project. So the idea of wildfire worked really well. It meant that the reflection worked for both King Lear and for the contemporary reflection. So the, the contemporary reflection has become a, a firefighter. He's um, you know, dressed in, in full firefighting kit with uh, a hose. Um, and he's obviously facing a different way because he's a reflection. He's facing back into the image and facing that that wildfire in the background.
1: I think that's a really striking reversal, isn't it? Because on the one hand you've got Lear wanting the universe to end, uh, the, the, the thunder and lightning to, to to bring it to a conclusion, and at the same, uh, w- what you've done with that is to reverse it and and to uh, take someone uh, and imagine someone whose role is uh, to to prevent and to put out fire.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think maybe that says something about, you know, sometimes we don't actually want everything
1: we wish for. <laughs> I just want to say a word as well about those kind of astronomical and astrological signs at the top of this part of the image, because in a way that speaks to someone that isn't depicted, but who is very much there in, in the background, maybe of this thi- of the thinking of this part of the uh, of, of of the creative work, which is Edmund. Edmund in King Lear is a character who's illegitimate, and therefore doesn't have the rights of inheritance and so on that his brother. Edgar is going to, and his sense of himself is very much as someone who's obeying the law of nature rather than obeying the laws of civility and and, and civilization. He has this great speech about how he would be what he is uh, regardless of what star sign he was was born under. There's this sort of debate um, in his soliloquy about what makes him what he is. He's insisting that the fact that he was born under the dragon's tail and so on has has no influence on, on what he's, he's come to be. Um, so there's a kind of debate going on there about, about the claims of astrology, whether the stars do or don't govern our behaviour. And that seemed to be something that you are quite economically putting into that part of the image.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting aspect to include because it raises the question of agency and how much control we have over our behavior and over the choices that we make. And I think particularly in a contemporary context, which is obviously the only time in which we can make choices that have any impact, um, thinking about climate change, it just, it raises the question of of how much can we do, or do we want to make choices um, that, that have an impact in any particular direction?
1: I suppose that question about choice and agency and so on might take us quite neatly into our middle panel, which is to do with uh, plague in a Shakespearean context, but COVID in a modern one. Plague fits quite weirdly into early modern ideas about illness and sickness, because the dominant view of disease among more educated people, right, is it's due to an imbalance in your humour, so in your bodily fluids. And and so if you're ill, it's because of something that starts from within you. But the thing with plague is it comes from the outside. And so it doesn't really fit into this paradigm of how you get sick. Nevertheless, early modern authorities uh, and local authorities, local government, seem to have a pretty good idea of some of the things you need to do to stop plague from spreading. So close down places where lots of people mix, like theatres. Of course, because they think that plague is the will of God, they don't want to close down churches because people should still be praying to be delivered from plague. So that's a bit of a inconsistency um, in in their thinking there. But um, they do things like closing the theatres, like ensuring that infected houses are shut up and marked. But as I say, that coexists with this belief that it's God's punishment, so you don't close churches. And there are also a whole wide range of um, cures for plague that people suggest, ranging from sniffing certain herbs to chewing certain herbs. Eating cinnamon toast was one of the ones I really liked. I came across that that yesterday. Um, Other substances are involved, but it's basically cinnamon toast. So cinnamon toast turns out to be a plague cure. Um, There are also cures that have to do with fumigation. So taking a new brick and making it really, really hot and chucking it in a basin of vinegar so that it, the, the steam that's produced fumigates the building. Another one has to do with onions. They thought the onions could absorb the plague. So if you take a, a load of onions, um, peel them and lay them on the ground, leave them for 10 days in a room you think is infected, those onions are gonna gather all the infection into them. And then you need to, of course, bury them somewhere in the ground so that they don't pass that infection on. So it seemed to me there was a whole load of really uh, you know, graphically interesting stuff here for you to get your teeth into, Gina.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Loads of of really good visual material, and some of it really does make you chuckle. But actually, what struck me was when when I'd finished chuckling at it and thinking, oh, "How how silly," you know, onions can't possibly absorb the plague. I started thinking about the the contemporary sort of version of that, and actually, we weren't in such a different position when COVID first hit. You know, we didn't have the understanding of of the disease that we wanted to have and have. Started to develop now, and there were some really uh, possibly unscientific cures that circulated on on the internet that were being recommended quite strongly. Even some of them by some fairly high-profile figures.
1: I remember, I remember Donald Trump uh, suggesting injecting bleach directly into your veins. (laughs) Mainline bleach as a COVID cure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that was really what I wanted to try and get into the into the image. Um, So the reflection then became, the contemporary reflection rather, became an NHS worker holding a phone to sort of, to give the idea of that internet access and social media, um, and what information might be available to people alongside our kind of scientific medical understanding and responses.
1: And if I understand the image correctly, that image of the NHS worker is a reflection of a Shakespearean character, isn't it? It's Friar John from Romeo and Juliet. Um, And I suppose plague is an idea that is everywhere in Shakespeare. Indeed, in Romeo and Juliet, a plague on both your houses, that that famous line from Mercutio. But Romeo and Juliet is also a a play where plague shapes the plot of the play in a a crucial way, isn't it, that Friar John is supposed to take the news from Verona to Mantua that Juliet isn't really dead. She's been given this potion um, by Friar Lawrence. But because plague is raging, Friar John uh, is in a a house where plague is thought to be, and he can't pass on the message. So he's the Shakespearean figure that your NHS worker is a reflection of.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly so. For me, there was a parallel between the the ecclesiastical figure and the NHS worker, you know, both are people who provided support and consolation and advice in times of um, COVID and plague. So I wanted to give them some sort of solace in each other as well. So in the image, they're actually, uh, Fry John is, is leaning against the mirror. He has his hand on the mirror um, so that he's almost touching his own reflection there, you know, their hands are meeting. So there is a sort of, yeah, a comfort perhaps between the two of them.
1: What I like about that is that you're putting these figures in dialogue. It's not just that the one is a reflection of the other, but there is this sort of relationship that you're imagining and depicting there. So it's not two things that are separated by the mirror, it's two things that the mirror is bringing into contact one with another. Um, Should we use that as our cue to go on to the final part um, of the image where we move on to the theme of of matter? So this was something that in my work I've become interested in, insofar as I've tried to address a question that's bothered a lot of historians and critics uh, over recent years, whether Shakespeare knew about this theory of matter that was becoming you know increasingly widespread and well known in his time but that went back to the ancients this idea that the universe is made not of the four elements as uh, aristotle had believed and as you know medieval science had believed and was still a very dominant theory in shakespeare's time but that maybe it was made out of these tiny particles not at, not atoms in the sense of modern atomic science but rather these tiny invisible things that through coming into contact with, with one another, basically create the universe. So this goes back to the Greeks, to people like Democritus, Epicurus, but one text that Shakespeare may well have known is not a Greek one, but a Latin one. It's Lucretius's De Rerum Natura, on the nature of things, on the nature of the universe, which had been largely lost in the Middle Ages, but was rediscovered in the early 15th century by an Italian called Poggio Bracciolini. Um, in a monastery somewhere, I think, in in, in Germany. Uh, We don't know quite which monastery. But this is not a scientific... Well, it is a scientific text, but it's also a poetic text. And one thing that I love about it, and I think gives an artist so much to work with, is the fact that it's not dryly scientific. Lucretius is coming up with all these metaphors and images to try and explain... Uh, atomistic ideas, to try and make the invisible visible, to go back to the terms um, of, of your work and of, uh, and, and of this project as a whole as well. He's trying to lead the reader and in, into an understanding of how just because you can't see these atoms, it doesn't mean they're not there. So some of the metaphors that he produces to get this idea across, often quite homely things like drying washing. You know that wet washing becomes dry. You know there there must be these tiny particles of water that are leaving it in order for it to dry out. I particularly love an image that he has as well of statues that stand by the roadside close to cities and how one hand becomes smaller than the other because people are are touching it uh, as as they pass. So there must be these tiny particles on the statue's hand that that are being. You know, wiped away uh, and that th- are th- being removed. We can't see it happening, but we can see the result of it. And um, that's how he's trying to help his reader to an understanding of, you know, the existence of invisible things. And that seemed to me to be something that really chimed in with, you know, your work on microparticles. No, we need to believe that this stuff is there. You know, they're clogging up our rivers, they're there in our atmosphere. And, you know, it's urgent that we can come to understand how the things that we do have consequences.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When you sent me various references over, the Lucretian text or an excerpt from it was one of the ones that I just picked up quickly before I took my daughter to a swimming lesson. And I hadn't printed the the first page of it. I pulled it out of the bag and sat waiting for her, um, and just had a read through without really properly appreciating what it was. And I was just—I remember sitting there being totally astounded by, firstly how how beautifully it's written, and then realizing exactly what it was and how long ago it was written. To think that they have, a, or they had rather, an understanding of, maybe not quite in the same. Um, vocabulary that we have now, but how matter is is put together was just astonishing. And as you said, there's so many good visual elements in the text that I could use to to bring into the into the image itself. I wanted at one stage to actually bring Lucretius into the image, um, and what I found was that you know like you said, the text had been lost, but also we don't have any images of Lucretius or even a, a, a bust uh, to work from. So there wasn't a, a particularly good way of, of bringing him into the image in an identifiable way. So we chatted about that and eventually we decided to bring in a, a stage light in the top right-hand corner of the image, um, which is shining light down onto the mirror itself and trying to capture the reflection of light on particles, like, like you'd see if um, if strong sunlight's coming through a window, you see reflection, at least in my house, you see reflection on, on dust particles, um, trying to capture that in the image to suggest the presence of of particles that we most of the time can't see.
1: Exactly, and that's an image that Lucretius uses repeatedly to try and help people understand that just because you can't see stuff doesn't mean it's not there. I don't think the point is that the um, dust particles themselves are atoms. It's more that by shedding light on something uh, that looks empty, you can, you can see stuff that's actually there. Yeah. And you know, if we take this to another extreme, we can hypothesize the existence of atoms that we can't see, but that we, whose existence we can deduce. So I think the idea of a, 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 a stage light um, is a nicely, an appropriately theatrical image to, to be using in, in, in this artwork to convey that that notion.
0: This is the, the panel that's almost slightly reversed um, in that the the main protagonists in the scene are probably not where most of the action, I suppose if you want to call it that, in a still, still image is. The scenery the, the setting actually forms a lot of the, the story of what's going on in that um, panel. So we have we have a rubbish bag flowing from an urban landscape into into a watercourse asking questions about where where waste pollution where plastic pollution goes to. We have a, a car exhaust talking about atmospheric pollution and where how that persists in our environment. And also, I've included a tractor um, spraying fertilisers, pesticides in in a field. Um, so all these things just making very small visual references to um, things that we're doing, behaviours uh, that are part of how our society is put together and perhaps that we take for granted. We don't think about how these things persist or disintegrate in our environment.
1: And the Shakespearean character that you've chosen to include here is quite an ironic choice in a way, isn't it? It's Prospero, um, who of course, towards the end of The Tempest, utters these lines about uh, how the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. On the one hand, he's talking about the theatre, but he's also talking about the, the world as well. So the globe in, in both its senses, you know, the, um, the, the, the world and the Shakespearean theater. But he's talking about that dissolving and, you know, leaving nothing behind and, uh, you know, spirits dissolving in, in, into thin air. But ultimately, I suppose, what we're trying to get at in this part of the image is that things don't dissolve into thin air. They carry on existing in other forms. You no know, plastics decompose into smaller plastics and nothing really ever goes away. and I, So I wonder if you want to talk a bit more about how you're using Prospero as a, as a figure in this part of the image.
0: He's almost the antithesis, isn't he, of what we were talking about and, and this idea of atomism, the idea that all can dissolve into nothing. And you know, to us now, it, it seems you know, totally implausible. Using the text, um, he allowed me to, I suppose, exploit the, the potential of, of the medium that I'm using so paint to explore the idea and almost to, to poke fun at it, I suppose. So he talks about, and I can't remember the quote, you'll know it better than me, that his cloud-capped towers shall dissolve. So I thought about those in a in a contemporary context and have included in in a sort of urban landscape in the scenery, some flats, some high-rise buildings, office towers, and I'm going to leave some of those unpainted, so unfinished. So just poking at this idea of, Things can't dissolve, you know. They can't dissolve into nothing by explicitly leaving them unpainted, leaving them as nothing.
1: And another great Shakespearean insta- instance of that comes in Hamlet and the, the graveyard scene, where uh, Hamlet is speculating on what happens uh, to Caesar or to Alexander the Great, you know, after a- after their deaths, that might their dust, you know, turn into you know clay or loam that stops a barrel with, you know, so. Um, He's interested in in these questions of what happens to matter, what happens to us after we stop uh, existing. I sometimes wonder whether part of this is due to his his own experience as an actor and as a a playwright. When people die on stage, they don't just go away. You've got got to get them off off there there somehow. There's this actual quite practical problem to do with getting matter um, from, from one place to another that as a dramatist he's quite interested in. So I don't know if there are any um, final points we want to make about this uh, image. Perhaps we could talk a bit about what we've both um, learned through the, the, the making of it. I mean, I certainly hope that our, our listeners have got something interesting out of listening to this conversation and that people who go to see the art, artwork will uh, enjoy it and find it thought provoking. But I must say, I found this such an interesting process myself. I'm primarily interested in how Shakespeare's work develops out of its historical context and how it engages with this historical context. But working on this project with you has made me get out of that comfort zone, I suppose, and try to think about what it says to our our own age and our own problems. And it seems to me that it has quite a lot to say to it. There are points of contact and there are points of difference. You know, obviously he's coming out of a period that has very different assumptions about the universe, about how the body works, um, about how stuff is put together, albeit those ideas are, are changing. And yet the ways that he's thinking these ideas through and the way that people in his time are responding to the crises of their time, I think has something to say to the age in which we find ourselves. What, what about you, Gina?
0: Yeah, I think exactly as you've just said, really, those what struck me having, you know, come to this project without having picked up a Shakespearean text since I was at school when I studied Macbeth, it's really highlighted just how relevant the texts still are. I noticed that that there are obviously dilemmas and contradictions in their understanding of, of the world and how things work, which reflected a change in in scientific approach at the time, but actually that's not so different from, from our understanding of the world now and how we still hold contradictions. We can still do that. We still have different beliefs. You know, We have a very sort of scientific approach to, to life and understanding now. We can still hold superstitions. We still have different beliefs, which you know, keeps life very much interesting and it keeps open the possibility of of new understanding. So I think that's a really important thing for me to take away from, from this project is that actually holding those contradictions and understanding them and appreciating them is, is something that's really important.
1: And do you think that as well as reflecting on history and reflecting on our own age and reflecting on other artworks, that works like your own, you know, can and should make a change to the way people not just think about themselves in the world, but how they act in it.
0: I think every artist wants to hope that their work can do something like that. that but you never know what people are going to take from an, an artwork or from a, a creative work of any kind. You can only do your best to kind of communicate something in it and, and leave it to the viewer to understand it within their own context, within their own understanding and experiences and perceptions. So I hope that it forms something that is visually appealing and interesting and thought provoking, and it would be lovely to hear how people respond to it.
1: Amen to that. I really hope that um, if people have been listening to this podcast and finding it um, interesting and as interesting to work on this project as we both have, that they'll see and enjoy the artwork, maybe even go back to Shakespeare and, uh, and, and tell us what they think.
0: Indeed. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. we love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook.